Today, we are taking on uh, the introduction to the Westminster Assembly. Um, I, I expect this will be many um, lectures to prepare us for the historical and theological issues that we need to understand in order to be able to start working our way into the Westminster Confession itself. And today, what I've decided to do is give us uh, an introduction to uh, the historical events which led up to the Westminster Assembly, but with a specific angle. I'm going to deal with the civil and political issues that led to the Westminster Assembly, and then next time we'll start working with the historical uh, uh, antecedents to the Reformation in terms of how did the Scotland emerge, how did the Reformation emerge in Scotland, how did the Reformation emerge in England, talk about major figures and major developments. So that's what I kind of want to work with. Uh, where we're going, but today I want to deal with the political factors that led up to it because they cannot be separated from a proper understanding of what was going on at the Westminster Assembly. So the Westminster Assembly was an advisory body to the long parliament, and it was designed to assist uh, the parliament in reconstructing the Church of England. There is an official ordinance dated from 12 June 1643, which sets forth the reasons for such a reconstruction of the church. This is uh, written up by Parliament, and here's what it says. The present church government by archbishops, bishops, their chancellors, commissaries, deans, deans and chapters, archdeacons and other ecclesiastical officers, depending upon the hierarchy, is evil and justly offensive and burdensome to the kingdom, a great impediment to reformation and growth of religion, and very prejudicial to the state and government of this kingdom. Because of this, it is declared to be the intention of Parliament to remove the present government and to set up such government in the church as may be agreeable to God's holy word and more apt to procure and preserve the peace of the church at home and, check, and note this, nearer agreement with the Church of Scotland. Uh, we'll get into this in a moment. There's a reason why the Church of Scotland is wrapped here. That's because both the king and the Parliament are... Uh, are suitors for the help of the Church of Scotland and the nation of Scotland. Uh, one uh, is trying to enlist the other uh, 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 Scotland to fight against the other. So it's very important that they reference the Church of Scotland because they want the Church of Scotland uh, to be on board with their reform effort. And this is the way they think they're going to get there. So they also say that there is other reformation needed in the areas of liturgy and discipline in the government of the church. But primarily what you can see here is that there is a desire to eliminate hierarchical structures within the church. There is a desire to eliminate uh, the, uh, the government, the form of church government that is functioning within the system of the Church of England because that particular government was not only corrupt, but it was also bringing in theology and liturgy, which was contrary to the word of God. Now, let's dig into the political climate that will help us understand uh, some of this statement here that is made by the long parliament. And to develop the historical issues, I'm going to be making generous use of a PhD dissertation written by Dr. Wayne Spears. It's entitled Covenanted Uniformity in Religion, the Influence of the Scottish Church upon the Westminster Assembly. This dissertation was presented at the University of Pittsburgh in the late 1970s and, and partial fulfillment of Dr. Spears' uh, PhD in history. And Dr. Spears was a longtime professor of systematic theology at RP Seminary, and now he is retired. But in surveying the field of literature on uh, the Westminster Assembly, 
this seems to be um, this seems to be blue ribbon research. Uh, I'm telling you, I've, I've I've been reading a lot of different dissertations on uh, events and uh, doctrines and ideas related to it, and it seems to me that this is considered to be an extremely credible pre- piece of research. And so I'm going to use uh, much of what I say here today is going to be basically just developing what Dr. Spears has already unfolded. He's done the work, and it's good work. And so we need to think about this relationship between civil and political issues and, uh, and, and the, the Westminster Assembly. And ironically, uh, we're going to see, first of all, that at the heart of the civil and political uh, disagreements uh, were profound disagreements over religion. Profound disagreements over religion. And it's difficult for us to appreciate that in our secular, non-establishment church situation here in America. But historian Willem Howler basically lays out how, in, how inseparable religion was from politics and society and cultural and more broadly when he says the continuance of ordered society was as yet inconceivable without the Christian church. And the church was inconceivable except as a single comprehensive institution uniform in faith and worship. So he says it did not occur to the parliament to ask whether or not there should be an established religion in England. The only question was which religion would be established. Now that's very important for us to consider as we think about the Westminster Assembly is they cannot conceive of a culture that hangs together or a political arrangement that holds together and transcends time and various situations apart from it being inherently religious. And it can't just be Christian in general. It absolutely must be a uniform understanding of Christianity and uh, everything, including everything from doctrine to liturgy and to practice and to worship. And this is the problem. The heart of the religious disagreement was basically this. King Charles was a Roman Catholic at heart. King Charles was Roman Catholic at heart, and he also showed many sympathies to Arminians and Arminianism, and many of his bishops were Arminian. So this uh, instigates a tremendous standoff between king and parliament, because the parliament, uh, broadly speaking, should be considered uh, Protestant. We can see their agitation developing in a, uh, in a complaint filed by the House of Commons. This was a subcommittee in 1628 complaining about Charles, his religion, and the Anglican Church. They talked about, um, they complained about the introduction of new ceremonies into the church, uh, their observance being rigorously required, promotion of clergymen who have published or maintained papistical, Arminian, and superstitious opinions and practices to bishoprics and other choice livings, and of the suppression of orthodox men, sermons, and books. Notice they are very concerned about Arminianism and about Romanism, which they call papistical. Um, To be an Arminian had overtones politically in this era in England to be somebody who was soft on Calvinism. So Francis Roos, in a famous speech, and by the way, Francis Roos is known for his famous Roos Psalter, spells out his concern about the influence and the inroads of Arminianism within the the Anglican church. He says, I desire that we look into the very belly and bowels of this Trojan horse to see if there be not men in it ready to open the gates to tyranny and Spanish monarchy. 
If you mark it well, you will see an Arminian reach out his hand to a papist, a papist to a Jesuit. A Jesuit gives one hand to the Pope and the other to the King of Spain. Notice the concerns here. Uh, the, the, the Arminianism is lending itself religiously and politically uh, to an established Roman Catholic Church in England. And so this is going to lead to great um, conflict between uh, the two branches of government, between Parliament and, uh, and the king. Parliament went on to try to uh, address this problem by uh, passing a protestation in Parliament. Uh, this is the late 1620s now, and the protestation says this, Whosoever shall bring in innovation of religion, or by favor or countenance seem to extend or introduce popery or Arminianism, and other opinion agreeing with the true and orthodox church, shall be reputed a capital enemy to this kingdom and commonwealth. Notice they just don't want it to be made illegal or criminal. It is a capital offense to introduce popery or Arminianism. So you can see here how religion and politics, uh, though they may make strange bedfellows, are intimately intertwined. And you can't understand the political environment apart from the religious concerns that are a part of it. So why is Parliament up in arms particularly? That's the question we need to ask. Why is Parliament so up in arms um, about uh, the theology that's being preached and uh, uh, begin to take practical root within the church? And uh, there are three broad motives, three reasons why they're upset. Number one, they're ideologically committed to Puritanism. It is very true that some of the parliament is ideologically committed to Puritanism. And Puritanism, as you know, is a movement to uh, purify the church according to Geneva, basically. That's what they say. And second of all, there are those who are deeply concerned about Spanish Catholic influence in the court of Charles. Uh, Spain and England had long been enemies, uh, much as uh, uh, Britain and, um, and uh, France had been because of a number of reasons. But after the Reformation, uh, these issues also turned upon religion. But Spain had long wanted to get its tentacles of influence uh, into Britain. And the way they began to do it was through the court of Charles and his growing sympathies for Catholicism. The other thing is... Uh, many in Parliament, and I would say if you tried to figure out where the principal concern is, first of all, it's with Catholicism. I'd say a small number of them are ideologically committed. There's a big concern about Spain and them getting their grubby hands upon British money. That's a big problem here. Another problem is these guys are irritated with the heavy-handed measures and policies of the Anglican Church uh, and the bishops. They were very resentful of the growing power that bishops were getting, not just within the church, but within society, how they were affecting society through the church. So a big part of the argument on the side of parliament is here. They are tired of these rogue bishops and uh, them forcing uh, their policies upon the church. Now I say ideologically not many were Puritan, and that's because of historical antecedents. Puritanism became a very virulent movement during the reign of Elizabeth in the latter part of the 16th century. And uh, they basically wanted to organize the Church of England and conform it more towards Geneva. They three different times introduced what is called the Bill and Book Modification. The Bill and Book Modification. And this is basically taking John Knox's order of worship from 
uh, Geneva, including its doctrine and all that, and trying to get it passed in the Church of England. And on three different times they failed, and it ended with Elizabeth ordering them to not meddle in the affairs of, uh, of the church any longer, and she suppressed those who were pushing ideological Puritanism by committing them to the tower, which is not a good thing. It means you're in jail. And she basically snuffed out the frontal attacks of Puritanism upon the church. And so what it did is it went underground. And uh, when Elizabeth died, the Puritan party in England thought that it saw a great uh, rising star on the horizon in Elizabeth's replacement, uh, King James I. One reason why they assumed that King James would be sympathetic to them is because he was raised by Presbyterians in Scotland. And they assumed that James would be sympathetic to their causes. And so they present their uh, motives for reform and their outline for reform at the so-called Hampton Court Conference in 1603. And, uh, well, that failed. It failed so badly that Puritanism was permanently driven underground, was not considered a political movement. It was not a church reform movement that had any legs to it. They were forced, basically, to push Puritan ideology uh, through preaching and publishing and through the printed page. But they, this long-haul strategy did pay off because eventually they got enough members elected to parliament who would push their ideas. Now, they weren't a large number. very small majority of parliamentarians, uh, members of parliament, were actually Puritan in ideology. But those irritants that I talked about... Uh, not wanting Spain to get their grubby hands on British money, and number two, their irritation at the reforms being imposed upon the Church of England by the rogue bishops lent support to their cause. In other words, it opened the ears of sympathetic Protestant uh, members of Parliament. Let me just tell you a couple of things they were angered by. Number one, the liturgical reforms initiated by Archbishop Laud. If you don't remember anybody else's name from this era, Remember Archbishop Laud. He is a terrible man. Terrible man who did untold harm to the church and was responsible for the persecution of sincere Christians. And he was also theologically aberrant. But what Archbishop Laud did, which cultivated this resentment and rebellion, uh, number one, he, uh, he took away the tables and boards for communion and placed the communion table behind the rail. What that did was change the way they communed. Prior to this, they would have come forward and not grabbed the bread and the wine. They'd have sat down at a table and had communion. What he did was he had that table move from behind, uh, up front to behind a rail, which forced the people to come forward and to receive the, the elements of the supper from the priest. And the way they were to receive that is on bended knee, which is another thing which they found completely offensive. And the other thing that uh, he required was the, uh, the regalia, the surplus in the hood, had to be worn by the pastors when they preached and read the scriptures in public worship. And another thing he insisted upon was performing the sign of the cross uh, over those who are recipients of baptism. These kinds of measures were thought to be extremely heavy-handed, and they agitated the members of parliament to the point that they wanted to, to uh, put the, the wheels of restraint uh, on those British, or rather those uh, those bishops. And so you can see them, uh, you know, having a lot of concern develop over that. Another thing is, there is a growing movement, not a large movement, 
to get rid of bishops. And uh, there was a tract written by a Scottish guy that makes its way down into England, a man's name Richard Manwaring, and he published a tract against bishops. And uh, wouldn't you know it, that Laud had him, uh, had this particular man savagely persecuted. Uh, they slit his nose uh, up like this. They ran uh, uh, knives and spears through his mouth. They cut off his tongue. They physically abused him and basically uh, uh, shut him up permanently. And this was distasteful because the man was simply protesting and there was no uh, provocation uh, for this kind of heavy-handed treatment. And it was another indication of bishops gone rogue. Another reason why there were concerns and issues that are political, that also skew into the religious realm, is the geographical relationship between England and Scotland. Because of the close ties and the geographical proximities, the argument was common to be made that because they were just over the border, things that affected one country affected the other. They had a common language, they had somewhat of a common history and experience, and it was well, the idea was well received that things that happened in Scotland affected England, and things that happened in England affected Scotland. And so, uh, you know, they have these long historical experiences and ties and relationships together, even though they didn't always see things eye to eye. One of those ties is the fact that Elizabeth uh, delivered... Um, delivered the Reformation basically from, from uh, Roman Catholic suppression in Scotland. When John Knox tried to uh, reform Scotland according to the Reformed uh, truth, uh, France invaded and nearly snuffed out the Reformation. However, Elizabeth sent troops and uh, suppressed the, 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 French, uh, the French attack and uh, permitted Scotland to go forward with its Reformation there. So, you know, you, you have these kinds of things uh, that indicate long-term relationships and, and somewhat of a neighborly uh, relation between them. But, uh, you know, there were other concerns here in this relationship where it could be made clear that a problem in Scotland or a problem in England had effect on the other country. And uh, one of them was this. When uh, Charles went back to Scotland, which he was common to do, his family is from there, his roots are in Scotland, if you will, it was not uncommon that he would go back. And, and by and large, the Scottish, even though they didn't agree with Charles on a lot, were very loyal to Charles. In fact, they were foolishly loyal to Charles and his son. And uh, so he went up there. He did something that really ticked off the Presbyterians. Um, he had a special service planned where he was going to uh, celebrate his coronation. And while he did that, he insisted that the coronation uh, be celebrated in a religious way that was acceptable to him. It had to be done in a royal chapel. It had to be uh, with a communion service and kneeling. And, and uh, they had to wear all the dress-up stuff that he wanted them to wear. And it irritated the Scots to no end. And uh, they were bitter. And their bitterness was made known to Charles. So when Charles went back to England, he said, I'm going to settle the score with those cranky old Scots. And what he did was he passed what's called the Book of Canons. Now, this is uh, religious, but it's very political in orientation. He passed what is called the Book of Canons. And that Book of Canons made no mention of ruling elders. It commanded that the communicants in Scotland receive the Lord's Supper while on bended knee. And then 
it also contains provisions for the construction of a new book for liturgy. And that book uh, of liturgy sparked revolt. Now, you may have heard this in your history classes. It's the revolt led by Jenny Geddes, where she picked up her stool and threw it at the bishop when he started to recite the liturgy from, from Charles I. Now, it's hard to say precisely if it was just her. It's good fiction. But um, Robert Bailey, who was there at the time, who was a, a devout Scot pastor, uh, described the famous riot in St. Giles as following. He said, so on Sunday morning, when the bishop and his dean and the great church began to officiate, as they speak incontinent, the serving maids began such a tumult as was never heard of since the Reformation in our nation. Well, Katie barred the doors because the flood of com- is coming. You get the Presbyterians mad about liturgy and worship. You, got, uh, you basically just swatted a, a hornet's nest. And petitions come filing in for protest against Charles. And Charles knew he had done something, something bad. He knew he had overreached massively because uh, the Scots started signing a covenant. And when the Scots signed covenants, you know trouble's a brewing. And what they did was sign uh, the old king's covenant uh, from 1580. And this covenant <clears throat> contains the following. It's also known as the king's covenant. It contained rejections of the doctrines and practices of the Roman Catholic Church, promises of loyalty to the doctrine and discipline of the Reformed Church of Scotland, and of the king. Now, basically what they're saying at this point is uh, we, are do- we are covenanting publicly to insist upon pure Presbyterian religion. And uh, the whole countryside ste- uh, uh, streamed into uh, Greyfriars Kirk and other places and began to sign it. Some people even signed it in blood. I'll talk to you more about this later. But it's a pivotal moment because what it does is it, re- it, it, it responds by slapping down Charles with his overreach. Now, how do you think Charles is going to take that? Well, Charles uh, is concerned he pretends to take back uh, this book of canon and some of this other stuff. But when he is rebuffed by the Scots and they basically tell him to go pound sand, they're tired of him, he decides to attack. Now, you can't separate this from this political situation and now it's turning into a military situation from the Westminster Assembly because this changes everything and the dynamic between the standoff between Parliament and the king. Because Charles marches north uh, to uh, suppress what he thinks is a rebellion going on in the Scottish countrysides. And guess what? He gets thumped by the Scots. He absolutely gets trounced. And the Scots are so mad at this point that they don't just stop him at the border and snuff him. They take the war to him. And they go into northern England and they take over the strategic seaport of Newcastle and all of its coal uh, refining mechanisms and so forth. And they settle down and they say, Charles, we are going to settle this our way, not yours. So Charles says, "Okay," knowing that he has not the military uh, wherewithal to beat down these angry Scots. And so he lets them stay there in, in England now. And he says, let's negotiate for peace. Well, who do you imagine comes along with the Scottish army when they negotiate for peace? But the Scottish Presbyterian pastors. And these pastors, uh, well, 
they don't let the sun uh, they don't let the sun set on their opportunity. They come to England loaded for bear. What do they do? Well, they go there to promote Presbyterian propaganda, particularly in the form of church government. They bring their best and the brightest minds. They bring Robert Blair, George Gillespie, and Robert Bailey. Each of these pastors had their own specialty. Robert Blair was there to beat down the independents. George Gillespie was there to beat down the Episcopalians uh, on their ceremonies. And Robert Bailey was there to destroy the arguments for episcopacy. And they trounced them in the papers, in the presses, and in their preaching. These Scottish pastors would go along the countryside, and we have reports of their preaching, that hundreds upon hundreds of people would listen to the preaching of the Scottish Presbyterian pastors. And they formed relationships but they also did something else. They were there to advise this negotiated committee from Scotland as they sat down with the British. And one of the terms of, of, uh, of negotiation of peace was the so-called Eighth Article. The Eighth Article. And this required uniformity of religion in England and in Scotland. And uh, this was very important for laying the groundwork for the Westminster Assembly. Uh, they wanted to ensure that there was a common form of religion and government. Alexander Henderson explains this. He says, We do all know and profess that religion is not only the mean to serve God and to save our own souls, but it is also the base and foundation of kingdoms and the states. The strongest band to tie subjects, their princes, to true loyalty and to knit one heart together with the other in true unity. Nothing so powerful to divide the hearts of a people as division in religion. Nothing so strong to unite them in unity in religion. It is therefore to be wished that there were one confession of faith, one form of catechism, one directory for all parts of the public worship of God, for prayer, preaching, administration of the sacraments, and one form of government in all the churches of his majesties. This was written in 1640. What does that sound like? But the actual commission for the Westminster Assembly and its charter given to it by Parliament. But uh, how do you imagine the British received that? The British, the British thanked them for their concern and dismissed them, sent them home. In other words, the British weren't ready. Neither the king nor the parliament was interested in letting these uh, Scottish Presbyterians uh, to, to push them around yet on uniformity of religion. So uh, they go back to Britain. However, the embers uh, are burning. The embers are a burning because too much has happened. There's too much bad blood in the air. And so uh, the last feature that we need to have in place to understand the, the civil, political, and the military climate that leads up to the Westminster Assembly is that, um, that Charles, uh, once again, is up to his old tricks. He, um, he attempted to try to assassinate the Earl of Argyle, one of the Scottish lords. Now, this uh, is foolish. After all, he'd just been thumped. By, uh, by the Scots. And uh, this news got back to England. And that led, that seemed to be one of those straws that starts tipping this thing over. Because the British uh, Parliament uh, just see that Charles is sneaky, underhanded, untrustworthy. He makes agreements and he breaks agreements. He never keeps his word. Here he's just signed this agreement with Scotland and he's already fomenting uh, problems in Scotland all over again and uh, so there's there there are just anger all over and then Charles tries to bring charges of treason against uh, some 
august members of parliament in in england itself and that was a bad move because uh, these men were forewarned uh, they withdrew and uh, charles goes to arrest these men and uh, they're not there and he has to withdraw with egg on his face and now you have two parties that won't talk they're isolated they're angry they're mad and guess what war the english civil war commences now, there's a lot you can say about this war. Basically, the main item that you need to take home with this war is that it was going very badly for Parliament. At first, it looked like they were going to gain the upper hand. But over time, uh, it became clear that the forces of Parliament uh, were going to be driven underfoot by Charles and his soldiers. So... Who would Parliament turn to in their time of need? Well, the Scots. But what will they have to do to get the help of the Scots? Religion. Uniformity of religion. That eighth article of peace is going to have to be invoked. And so it's interesting. It's almost as if you have messengers from Charles uh, racing on a horse up one side of England and you have messengers from Parliament racing up on a horse on the other. And they're trying to beat each other to get to the Scottish General Assembly to make their case for why Scottish uh, Church should get behind the Scottish army going down to England and suppressing uh, Charles and his soldiers and so forth. And uh, the end result of it is this. Charles basically sends a letter saying... Is there anything I could do to help religion in Scotland? And Parliament sends a letter saying, we're ready for that uniformity you spoke of. <laughs> who won? Well, it's obvious who won. Parliament won. And uh, the Scots, however, had learned a good lesson from that peace treaty. Remember that eighth article of the peace treaty? And they said, okay, but let's covenant on it. <laughs> it's better than shaking hands covenanting on it seals the deal so the scots said all right we're interested we're all ears we want uniformity of religion in the three kingdoms but this is what it's going to take so they uh, they draw up the solemn uh, league and covenant the solemn league and covenant let me just read a bit uh, from it here in the sphere of religion the subscribers of the solemn league and covenant promised to extirpate, that is, get rid of, popery and prelacy, and to the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, against our common enemies, the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, according to the word of God, and the example of the best Reformed churches. And we shall endeavor to bring the church of God in the three kingdoms in the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship and catechizing, that we in our posterity after us may, as brethren, live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. Robert Bailey, uh, the uh, Scottish uh, pastor, said the English were for a civil league and we were for a religious one. Now, uh, some historians think that that's just maybe a, oh, hyperbole or whatever. He just overstated the, the nature of the situation. Uh, I think it wasn't far off. It's very clear where the interests are. The primary interests are uh, with the civil order. Yet, Parliament does know 
that the civil order will only be held together by a religious, um, a common religious uh, set of principles. So uh, they all agree, and they, uh, they seal the deal. In uh, May of 1641, a protestation is passed by Parliament, which, uh, which agrees, uh, uh, this is 43, finally, that agrees with it. They, they all sign the, uh, eventually they all end up signing uh, the West, uh, the, uh, the Solemn League and Covenant, and uh, agree to conform the church to, uh, to the principles of Reformation. But here's the deal. Uh, they did not agree on any particular form. So, that would leave the assembly open for a lot of debate and discussion. And it was originally thought that the assembly would get together and touch up the 39 articles, and this thing would be all done in just a matter of you know, a few weeks or months at the most. It took years. Because they didn't agree in advance upon a number of key issues that were going to lead to a lot of debate. But this is what they did enter into the discussion with. The Solemn League and Covenant in one pocket, and this vow, which had to be taken by every member admitted to the assembly. I blank do seriously promise and vow in the presence of Almighty God that in this assembly whereof I am a member, I will maintain nothing in point of doctrine but what I believe to be most agreeable to the word of God, nor in point of discipline, but what may make most for God's glory and the peace and the good of the church. This is going to set forth the principles which will steer the discussion in, uh, into the outcome that is most favorable, particularly if you're a Scottish Presbyterian. Well, I'm going to conclude there with their exposition of the, the civil, civil political ramifications that led to uh, this, uh, this great assembly uh, called by the Parliament. Any questions here on uh, the historical information or questions on the sermon from uh, Ephesians 6?